0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. As a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world, SunGrow has delivered more than 10 gigawatts of inverters just in the Americas and 120 gigawatts across the globe. Now SunGrow is collaborating on two new solar developments in the state of Georgia, projects that will provide clean power for Facebook's new data center. SunGrow is supplying inverters for a series of new world-class solar facilities that will support Facebook's operations with 100% renewable energy. Learn more about SunGrow's cutting-edge solar projects at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Power chances are that COVID and its challenges have affected energy management for your organization in a pretty dramatic way. That's why CPower and its team of energy experts are back with a webinar series aimed to help organizations make sense of the chaos and optimize their energy use and spend in 2021. This hour-long webinar series features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to reduce energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. Visit the cpowerway.com. .com/2021 to register or follow the link in the show notes.
1: Green Tech Media Podcast.
0: From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang. I'm Stephen Lacey of Postscript Audio and contributing editor with GTM. Welcome to the opening show of 2021. And well, what is happening? In the final months of 2020, the most important U.S. energy legislation in a decade flew under the radar, attached to a coronavirus relief and government funding bill. It's an astonishing collection of measures, any one of which would have had little chance in Congress up till now. It would have been a bill big enough to discuss this whole episode, but it's been eclipsed by the possibility of even more ambitious legislation under a Democrat-controlled Congress, thanks to some big Senate wins in Georgia on Wednesday. So how much can get done? We'll dig in. And lastly, one of the biggest business stories of the year, Tesla, a stratospheric stock price, strong sales growth, and the second richest man in the world. What do Elon Musk's fortunes foreshadow for EVs? My fortunes are inevitably tied to these two people here with me, Jigar Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. They are, uh, as always, here with me to open the new year. Katherine Hamilton is chair of 38 North Solutions. She is in Arlington, Virginia. How are you?
1: Well, it is a new year, although with everything that happened yesterday in the Capitol, I saw a tweet that kind of summed it up, which was evidently it is still 2020, um, because things are still pretty crazy. So anyway, it's 2021.
0: I mean, remember back a year ago, the backdrop of our first episode of 2020 were the images of Australians huddled on beaches to protect themselves from out of control wildfires, this bright orange sky behind them. And the backdrop for this year is the cadre of Trump supporters storming into the Capitol building behind a Confederate flag, Capitol police with guns drawn, lawmakers hiding behind chairs, a woman dead draped in a Trump flag. What a start of the year.
1: Yeah, we were on, uh, the governor of Virginia put Arlington, because I lived so close to D.C., on a curfew last night. Um, But we were all, I mean, we're all in our homes anyway, so we were all safe. It was just terrifying to watch on TV.
0: Jager, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, pretty shaken up, I have to say. I mean, I just think that the fact that we had an attempted coup, which is, I think, what you have to call it, um, because they were- Insurrection? Well, they were trying to overturn the, the election, right? So that, I mean, I think it is a coup- by definition. And, um, and uh, you know, I think most people just thought it was a culmination of uh, four years. And, you know, like, it was not a surprise to people. Um, it was a surprise that they got into the Capitol so easily, but it was not a surprise that it was attempted or occurred. I mean, even D.C. Mayor Miro Bowser asked for the National Guard days ago and then was denied by the Defense Department until... Basically, they had to reverse it because Mike Pence was cowering in a in a room somewhere, and it's it's just I I just feel like this this can't be normal. Like I just think that the fact that we all just sort of live our lives as normal and fulfill our schedule as per the Outlook calendar, and like it's it's I don't know. it, It I'm pretty shaken.
0: Yeah. What is the phrase that we've all been going to over the last four years? Shocked but not surprised. Um, Well, let's go to a surprising piece of news, maybe surprising for some of us who are not hardcore Congress watchers or who are (laughs) writing legislation. There was some good news coming out of Washington at the end of last year. In the closing hours of Congress before the holidays, lawmakers passed the Energy Act of 2020, and it set aside $35 billion in new funding for clean energy R&D It created a a massive push to reduce the climate impact of buildings with energy efficiency, featured a phase-out of some of the most egregious greenhouse gases, and it had extensions of tax credits for wind, solar, nuclear, and carbon capture you know, for the atmosphere and for the climate, the biggest deal may be this phase out of a family of chemicals that leak out of air conditioners and other industrial sources uh, called HFC 134A. It's more than a thousand times worse for climate change pound for pound than carbon dioxide. It doesn't take much of a substance that bad to cause a problem. And so this bill attempts to Um, phase it out. It also creates a carbon dioxide removal task force. It supports programs for smart monitoring and visualization of the grid. It provides cash and pilots for microgrids and isolated communities and rural electric cooperatives. A lot of stuff is going to get done thanks to this 11th hour mishmash of a bill. So Catherine, what in the world did you spike lawmakers drinks with in Washington in December? (laughs)
1: Well, let's just say at one point, the 5000 page bill had clogged up a printer. And this is like such a like a 1987 problem, where they couldn't get it printed so people could read it. Um, That's how big this package was. And there are a bunch of reasons that it happened this way. One is they had to keep the government open. So they had to get, you know, an omnibus appropriations, which is how we get all of our agencies funded in the government. So that was a huge piece of it is like all this money that has to go to Department of Energy and other agencies. All of those bills had to be packaged together. They needed to do something on COVID relief, which they did. Not exactly what everybody wanted, but something on COVID relief. And then they had all of these energy bills. Bills in the, both the House and Senate, and a big package in the Senate that had been languishing for a long time. I have worked on some of these bills since 2011. I mean, these are things that have bipartisan support that authorize programs that have been in existence for a long time, and some of them are new programs too, um, but that really allow for more R&D and um, in all kinds of energy technologies. And so they had all of these energy bills that had support from both sides of the aisle, both the House and Senate, that they just needed to get over the finish line. And remember Chair Murkowski um, from Alaska, this was her last year as Chair of the Energy Committee in the Senate, This was her legacy, and she has been wanting to get this onto the floor forever, and she finally did it, and um, it was negotiated in a very smart way so that they could get a lot done, and I think it does show um, that that when they want to clear the decks and they have a bunch of bipartisan things that they agree on, that they can do it.
0: So I listed a bunch of stuff that was in the bill. What do you think is most impactful out of that list? Anything jump out at you in particular?
1: Yeah, so the one that has the most climate impact is certainly the HFC, the hydrofluorocarbon, which is based on the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. We've talked about this on an episode before. And it didn't ratify the Kigali Amendment, but what it did was it basically said forward all of the goals of the kigali amendment so that we will be in compliance as a country and this was supported not just by the climate community but also by the chemical industry because the chemical industry is already producing lower HFC products and wants to maintain economic competitive advantage. And so they were pushing just as hard as anybody else. Um, this this is a huge impact. It will, it will have as much as a degree Fahrenheit impact on climate. So I think that was one of the most important things. But just Otherwise it was very important to get a lot of these programs back um, you know back up and running and the money going in the right place so that when we have money to spend the programs will be in place for us to put it into.
2: Jigger, what do you make of this legislation? Well, the best part of it for me was the 10% tax credit on electric, electric motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, people don't know but Jigger has a nine car garage
0: filled with electric <laughs> motorcycles.
2: <laughs> I've got a Jay Leno. No, I, I have a one-car garage to be clear, <laughs> and one car. But um, no, look, I, I, um, I don't know what I think about this. Right? I mean, um, Catherine and I were asked to do, you know, an Energy Gang Light uh, presentation to National Energy Week. Was it 2019? And Murkowski and Manchin got up there and talked about how wonderful it was to work together and how they love each other's staffs, and it's amazing, and yada, yada, and this thing's going to happen. And then throughout the year, um, Mitch McConnell was like, this ain't getting a vote. I don't know what you're talking about, right? And so we were supposed to get it passed. It wasn't passed. It was supposed to get it passed. We weren't going to get it passed, yada, yada. This was all throughout 2019, and then, so it must have been 2018 when we did this Energy Week thing. And then, um, and then it never got attached to a COVID bill. I mean, the the thing. Look, I'm as excited about this passing as the next person, but I think that we have to recognize, for instance, like the energy storage tax credit didn't make it into this thing, and that was a huge bipartisan win that we had accomplished two years ago between uh, Murkowski and Mansion, right? And so. Uh, to the extent that, like, it never really got into the package, um, into the final package, like, you know, like I, it, I think that this goes to show that there is a tremendous amount of support for energy bills in a bipartisan way. That's been true since two thousand and five, um, when we passed the two thousand and five Energy Policy Act. But that when it comes to really being thoughtful about getting this stuff done. I don't think that Mitch McConnell was that interested in sort of a thoughtful approach to, you know, sort of kick-starting the economy.
0: Well, that's obvious because he's, you know, denied the chance to debate uh, these piece, individual pieces of legislation on the floor. But all the same, I mean, focusing on just an EV tax credit or a storage tax credit and ignoring all this other great stuff feels like it's a little
2: short-sighted. It, it, there's a lot in here. No, I'm that- excited that it got passed. Don't get me wrong. Like, I just feel like... This is like this is this is like the minimum that needed to happen, right? The biofuels credit, the solar and wind credit, right? These had to happen, right? People's lives were at stake, there were people's like businesses that were at stake, there were there were projects that were going to get canceled if this stuff didn't happen. There were enormous amounts of sort of safe harbor you know, investments that were going to be made, et cetera, Right. So this stuff had to happen. And I'm glad it happened. Right. I'm really glad it happened. But I think that there are a lot of people who called this, I don't know, a down payment on Biden's climate, you know, sort of agenda, et cetera, And I, I just am not prepared to go that far. What do you think, Catherine?
1: Yeah, so I I wouldn't uh, criticize it quite as harshly as Jigger, only because, so for example, storage got a billion dollars over five years to do all kinds of interesting pilot and demo projects that will help electric co-ops, utilities, microgrids, long duration storage. So that was significant, even though the credit didn't pass, which was not, it was always a long shot anyway to get that tax credit in. Um, basically, all they did was re-up the existing tax credits for a bit more time. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that that didn't get in. The EV tax credit, the White House has been opposed to forever. So you know we knew that was also a non-starter. Um, but I do think some important things got done. There's one thing that was like very much in the weeds on FERC, which everybody knows I love, which is it actually funded and created an Office of public. Public Participation, which that is an office that would allow consumers and consumer groups to participate and be funded to do so, so that the voices of all of those people can be heard in developing energy markets. And as you know, that is a huge impact on what happens out in the real world on um, energy and what gets developed. And so I thought that was really important. There was that also- That was a
2: huge thing. That yeah. was a huge thing. And there was I mean, just, to, but just to add to that, Catherine, just- um, that process was in the original statute that created FERC. Yes. And they never created <laughs> 1978. it before funded.
1: It. Yeah, that was <laughs> in PURPA, Right, yeah, exactly. And
2: Public Citizen has been fighting to ha- get this in Right. for years. And i that is a huge win. I totally agree.
1: Yeah. So in part, it's not like the, a lot of this stuff was really revolutionary. A lot of it was really just about getting stuff done that had been languishing for a long time that had to get over the finish line. Um, another thing that I thought was really important for climate was this requirement to use advanced technology for methane leaks, because methane also is a huge greenhouse gas issue. So I think that there are some things that are going to have a material impact on climate, but a lot of this is clearing the decks and teeing programs up so that when the new administration comes in, they have those ready to accept funds and to build on what they can do.
2: Yeah. And the HFC um, compromise that got done, remember, I mean, for for our listeners that You know, there was a deal that almost got done on HFCs. And then at the last minute, there was a senator who objected and had to be dropped from the deal. And so the fact that this deal finally got done is a really big deal and, you know, is going to dramatically improve um, our chances of of winning in the climate, you know, the climate war here.
0: Yeah. If you look at Project Drawdown's list of the most impactful things you can do to slow... Uh, planetary warming, HFCs are at the very top of the list. So it's a it's a big deal. Um, and an even bigger deal considering the political resistance um, and, and foot dragging we've seen in the U.S. Can we just talk very quickly about tax credits? We have had a number of conversations about whether we need wind and solar tax credits. Um, those got extended a little bit in this bill. We also saw an extension of the 45Q tax credit that will potentially help carbon capture and storage, advanced nuclear. What is your assessment of the tax credit situation, Jigger? Um, what will the wind and solar extensions do or not do? And how important is the 45Q extension?
2: Well, the wind and solar tax credits, as most people know, I've been pushing to get them phased out since 2012. Um, and the argument I, look, for do... that
0: is that it, it's a very small number of investors that can take advantage of tax credits. Is that, is that basically what you're arguing?
2: Well, at this point, what I'm arguing is that, in fact, the U.S. is systematically more expensive at installing solar than every other country on the planet. And the reason for that is because only a small group of people actually have the ability to monetize these tax credits, right? You can't just go to your local bank and monetize the tax credits, right? You actually have to know somebody who knows somebody who knows me be able to get the tax credit monetized. And the problem with that is that it really does create an industry of haves and have-nots. And I don't love that, right? The other challenge that the tax credit has is that there's only so many tax credit buyers in the United States. So let's call that number 10 billion. It used to be about 7 or 8. They've expanded it to 10. Maybe it's 11. Maybe it's 12. But it's not 50, right? And so when you have... 45Q tax credits, like, you know, for CCS, or you have micro turbine tax credits, or combined heat and power tax credits, or fuel cell tax credits. Those are all lovingly called orphan tax credits, because no one wants them, right? And so the challenge is, is that at some point, the solar and wind industry have to stop crowding out the rest of the tax credits, or we can, you know, pray for a unicorn and actually get the U.S. federal government to not rely on tax credits anymore and rely on direct cash payments for these projects, right? But but something's got to give, right? I mean, if you're a bank or an insurance company that buys tax credits, it is so much easier to do the same exact deal you did last year in solar than it is to do fuel cells or anaerobic digesters or anything else in the orphan tax credit category. Now, this is a staple
0: of U.S. energy policy, right? We, we, we incentivize technologies through tax credits, And it's been that way for decades. Is there upside to these extensions, Jigger?
2: Of course there are. I mean, I think that when you think about the cost of complying with 100% decarbonization, particularly through solar and wind, you know, one of the things I think people continue to have a hard time grappling with because they just want to view solar and wind as mature is that we're not that far along, right? If Biden wants uh, 100% decarbonization of the electricity grid by 2035, Right, that means pick a number, let's call it 60% of the US grid has to be wind and solar. We're at like 10% of the US grid being wind and solar. That means 50% like is still yet to be installed, right? That's a lot of wind and solar. And so, you know, yes, I don't think that the cost of wind and solar is going to go up much when you phase out the tax credits because remember, we also have a 4-year safe harbor law, right? So once the tax credit goes to to 10%, which is you know where the permanent level is, that year before, you can safe harbor modules or wind turbines and store them in a warehouse somewhere or inverters or something else. And then you have four more years to build them, right? So we have this 26% tax credit now basically through 2026, right? And so it's not like it's actually going away in two years it it you know the safe harbor then you know gets get started and then you have until 2026 right so I just want to make sure that people understand that like it matters I get it the decarbonization costs are lower it matters that states that haven't really benefited from the tax credit will be able to get some benefit between now and 2026 but it does crowd out all the other innovation that we want to see scale up by 2030?
1: I would remark that offshore wind getting five years was going to be really important for that industry. They also got a bunch more money for the office that improves permits for offshore wind. So I think that is just as important because um, that will help grease it for this industry that is still fledgling and still has a hard time competing.
2: Off-grid, offshore wind definitely falls into innovation. And then just to answer your other question, Stephen, around CCS and 45Q, I mean, I would say that you know, being active in the market the last couple of years, um, there are a lot of CCS projects that are finally being seriously pursued. And so I would say that three, four, five years ago, it was all sort of just, you know, one random project here and there, mostly for enhanced oil recovery. But today, I would say with Microsoft and Stripe and all these other people wanting to buy the credits, and then you've got, um, you know, like, People like Occidental Petroleum and others that are like pursuing projects. Like, I think you're going to see three, four, five billion dollars worth of projects actually get proposed in the next 12 to 18 months. We'll see which ones of them actually get installed. Um, And then in this bill, there was also a separate DOE subsidy program uh, competition for, I think, six CCS projects in development. So I think CCS is getting a serious uh, shot in the arm on this. So the final question I have is on the
0: policymaking piece that I think will get us into the secondary discussion about what happens next under a Democrat-controlled Congress and White House. David Roberts and Matt Iglesias, two former Vox journalists who run different newsletters, David Roberts... runs the Volts newsletter and Matt uh, Matt Iglesias runs the Slow Boring newsletter. They had a conversation about what happened with this bill and they call it Secret Congress. And that is the public Congress that we all know is more about hyper-polarization and playing off each other. But actually behind the scenes there is stuff still happening. And I know, Catherine, maybe you don't characterize it as a secret Congress. But there's stuff happening behind the scenes that we all don't get to see. And in fact, this energy bill has been in play for nine years. And all of a sudden, it happened at the last minute. So what do what do you know, Catherine, about how this stuff happens behind the scenes that inevitably gets us to a point where we can take action in a meaningful way?
1: Well, first of all, it's not behind the scenes. You can look there. Every single hearing is webcast. You can go onto Senate Energy and Natural Resources website, and that's the main energy committee for the Senate. And you can watch any hearing you want, and everything is public. So, you know, I've had many, many clients be witnesses and testify in front of these committees. There have been strong discussions. They've marked up the bills publicly. Everything is publicly available. It's simply that it's not so snazzy or sexy that the press wants to pick it up. Now, some of the trade rags do. So they, they they do enjoy these hearings. But it isn't secret. It's something that's been done and done under what's called regular order. So it's committee work. It's the work of every committee. And they may have discussions. They may have disagreements over which technologies they favor and which models they prefer for policies. But Um, That work is getting done every single day in the committees, and that's the job of the committee chairs and ranking members. And it makes a really big difference who those committee chairs are and how that process works in every single committee.
2: Yeah, the one thing I'd say is that I, I mean, I love Dave Roberts, less so Matt Iglesias. But like, one of the things that I like worry about is that these guys are basically accusing themselves of not doing a good job, right? The whole point of calling it a secret Congress is that they themselves decided that they were going to be part of the Trump show and not actually report on all the stuff that was happening during the last four years. And so now it's secret to them because, and it's secret to their readers because they didn't report on it, right? Like, as I said, right? Like, you know, Murkowski and Manchin talked about all this stuff on stage at National Clean Energy Week, like, you know, in ways that were like, quite highly public, right? Like, and so it's not like we haven't talked about this even in public forum where they were, you know, sort of touting their uh, accomplishments, right? It was just so, it was just not newsworthy given that Trump was managing editors, you know, like scripts every day. I hear what you're saying, but I don't think what they're saying is
0: that um, they missed it what they're saying is that most people understand congress most people aren't watching c-span most people aren't watching these hearings like if you guys might be but the vast majority of the american public is watching morning local television news none of this gets reported and so the horse trading that goes on behind the scenes that is still very much active is invisible to people but and it won't anyway that's, though, that's what Stephen. they're reminding us of
2: but it will never be like, even even when we move from $200 billion a year of investment into clean energy technologies to $1 trillion a year to be able to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, people are still going to be talking about their latest TikTok video and not about an energy bill. It is not like the stuff that we do is super sexy. It's like, what's his name? Remember that guy, Hank, uh, whatever his name, who sold propane, right? King of the Hill? Like... That's that that are those are our employees. Those are our people, right? They're basically going to a building saying, "Hey, you'd save some money doing energy efficiency with lighting retrofits," right? That is what's in the 200 billion dollars. And I get it, it's not sexy, but it is creating huge amounts of jobs and and extraordinary careers for people. I think that that's definitely true for
0: almost all pieces of major legislation. And the reason why I bring it up is because Now we're talking about the Green New Deal. We're talking about what happens on our Democratic controlled Congress. And so it's a very public conversation, which is what I want to get into next. First, though, We're going to talk about our sponsors. And thank you so much to SunGrow for supporting the show. SunGrow is supplying inverters for some of the world's biggest corporations as they commit to increasingly aggressive decarbonization goals. In 2020, Facebook met its goal to eliminate or offset all of its own emissions and pledged to decarbonize its entire supply chain within a decade. And as part of that goal, Facebook is ensuring all its data centers run on clean power. In Georgia, Facebook is working with electric co-op Walton Electric Membership Corporation to build utility-scale solar projects to supply power for the tech giant's nearly one million square foot data center in newton county and epc contractor mccarthy building companies is going to use SunGrow 250 kilowatt string inverters for these solar power plants and they're going to support facebook's goal of 100 renewable energy throughout its supply chain SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables and you can learn more at sungrowpower.com Com. We're also brought to you by CPower. When it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use and energy spend in 2021... You don't have a crystal ball, and boy, we could all use one, right? That's why C-Power and their team of energy experts are back with a webinar series aimed to help organizations make sense of the chaos and to optimize their energy use and energy spend in 2021. This is an hour-long webinar series, and it's going to feature market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to reduce energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. This series is also going to include guest appearances by leaders in several commercial and industrial sectors, including healthcare, commercial real estate, oil and gas, and more, so you can learn about how your industry and others are maximizing their energy assets around the country. 2020 is finally behind us, but 2021 poses its own set of challenges. Power in its 2021 Demand Side Webinar Series, is here to help. Visit the slash 2021 to register, or just go to the uh, link in the show notes. On Wednesday... While Trump supporters and military gear were scaling the walls of the Capitol building, Democrats officially took control of the Senate. Hard to believe that that was a secondary news story this week. That was after two runoff elections in Georgia. So for the next couple of years, Democrats will control the Senate, the House, and the White House, but with a very slim margin, which we'll talk about. Still, it suddenly raises the possibility, are we going to get something big on climate? And how much can be accomplished? How soon? So let's let's get into that, Catherine. What is the most immediate change we're going to see in Congress?
1: So first of all, two things have to happen, and I and I will tell you, I am going to give Bill Dowster, who was the deputy chief for Harry Reid, who was a uh, pretty amazing, amazingly political uh, majority leader um, in the Senate for a long time, um, who played three-dimensional chess. (laughs) And he kind of walked me through this. So first, they have to certify the Georgia results. They think that can be done by Sunday. Then remember, it's 50-50. And right now, the tiebreaker is still Vice President Pence. And so Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader until Uh, Senator Harris is sworn in on January 20th, at which point she will become the vice president on tiebreaker, and she will then recognize Senator Chuck Schumer of New York as the majority leader. And what that means is that he is going to determine the agenda. He is going to set the schedule, just like Mitch McConnell has done. And remember, under the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell's entire organizing principle was around keeping anything from happening that Obama wanted to, it was obstruction. I'm going to obstruct everything Obama does. With Chuck Schumer coming in, his organizing principle is going to be around, I want to make my new president, Joe Biden, very successful, and I'm going to organize around everything he wants to get done. But it's going to be tricky because they do have 50-50. This has been done before. In 2001, Majority Leader Daschle negotiated um, with the other side of the aisle how to do this, how to manage committees. So each committee will have 50-50 representation of Republicans and Democrats, but the chair will be a Democrat and the ranking member a Republican. So what that means for every committee is that the chair of the committee will set the agenda for the committee, will set the hearing schedule, will decide what gets a hearing, who the witnesses are and of course everybody has to work together so republicans have the opportunity to provide witnesses too Um, but it is very much 50 50 split and there's a rule that a set of rules that was passed back in 2001 that they could use as a model for how you deal with tie votes you know how do you run it on the floor you know when would harris have to be called in so this has been done before um, and there are some really key things that can be done with a simple majority vote um, once Schumer is becomes the majority leader.
0: And what um, are those? How ambitious are they?
1: Yeah, so there are three major things. One is that nominations. So this is cabinet-level officials, so Biden can get the cabinet he wants with 51 votes. Um, the second thing is CRA, Congressional Review Act. All of those regulations that were passed recently and it goes back to within 60 session days of the Senate of Congress. And that could go back many months because Congress is in session only very few days um, in reality. So all of those regulations that were put out at the last minute can have resolutions of disapproval and be knocked down immediately. So they did this with Obama for dozens of regulations, and they can do the same thing for all of those regulations that have passed at the last minute and over really over the last six months probably under the Trump administration. So that's really big. Um, And the third big thing is the budget. Budget reconciliation only needs 51 votes to pass, and the budget reconciliation provides all of the money – that is needed, that sets the goals. It doesn't require presidential signature. It is, this is what Congress agrees that will be how we're going to spend our money. It can't be policy, so it can't be doing like a clean energy standard, but it does provide the, the outlines for what you need and the limits and the caps on what you can spend. And you could get a lot done with budget reconciliation and remember the incoming chair of the budget committee Would be
0: Bernie Sanders. And what would be the implications of that, Catherine?
1: Yeah, so they could park a lot of money and set goals, money goals, on what you would spend on clean transportation, on clean buildings, on, you know, having a climate bank or what's now called an accelerator. You could do a lot of spending in that piece. You could also do taxes, but you just can't do policy. So to me, this is the first big opportunity. I don't think it's the last opportunity to do climate legislation, but this is one opportunity to put the money in that We've been talking about, and then remember all of those bills that passed at the end of 2020. All those programs could get very highly funded if you can get the budget outlines done right, right, right off the bat. And it's supposed to be done by April 15th. It often isn't, but that's kind of the goal.
0: So, Jigger, how much wider are the pathways now, and where are the paths bringing us to?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like that's very philosophical. I feel like I'm in like freshman year college again. (laughs) I. I um first I think it's 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 a pretty big change from where I thought we were gonna be on you know after the presidential election. And so from that perspective I think it's great. I, I do think that we should be a little bit careful about um how much wider we could go, right? Because like, you know, I don't think like like Joe Manchin is sort of like, you know, too. Uh, disrespectful comments away from joining the Republicans, right? And so, like, I don't think that this is, like, a, you know, thing where you can just run roughshod over <clears throat> over all the members. Um, you know, so in a 50-50 split, you have to get all 50 members to agree to move forward on something on the Democrat side. So, but even in that context, there is a lot that can be done. And so, Part of what I think is uh, interesting about these times is that there is a progressive agenda, which is around new programs, new dollars, new things to do. And that is something that Democrats have loved doing since time immemorial, but certainly since the Clinton administration, where they're basically like, let's pass a law, and that goes on the top of our resume, and look how awesome we are. The actual implementation of that law often lags, right? So the actual ACA or, you know, the loan guarantee program or, you know, the super ESPC contracts, which are energy efficiency for the government, right? A lot of that implementation has been weak. And part of, I think, what we're saying is you can get more money into existing programs relatively easily. And those existing programs could actually be the largest stimulus that we have ever done for clean energy. To give you an example, we passed enhanced use lease contracts in 2005, right, in the Energy Policy Act. That allows the Department of Defense and many other folks to sign 25-year virtual PPA contracts, right? We haven't really done them. Guess who has? Apple and Google and all sorts of other people. The U.S. government could like do 28,000, 30,000 megawatts worth of solar and wind VPPA contracts. It'll probably take three and a half years of red tape to get all those things done and all those things through the organizations, and someone will have to be in charge just of shepherding the VPPAs through the administration to get them done because it's no one's first priority, right? But in this type of Congress, those types of initiatives are... The easiest things to fund, right? Like you just put more money into energy efficiency, or more money into the motor pool at GSA converting to electric vehicles, or more money into whatever. And the thing is, is it sends more. It sends more permanent shockwaves through the supply chain, right? Like if if the federal government buys at this quantity, everything suddenly gets a lot cheaper because you know the private sector is supplying a lot of stuff uh, that way. So. The, I would say that the, the biggest challenge that I see is the attitude of activists, right? An attitude of all these other people and recognizing the federal government itself is 20 plus percent of the U.S. GDP, right? And that they could do a lot with 50 senators if they actually constrain themselves to radically changing the way in which you implemented existing programs. So it may not be the Green New Deal, it may be the enhanced use lease deal, No, but it could even be the Green New Deal. That's the thing that people don't realize is that we have a lot of employment programs within the government, right? So if they want to guarantee everybody a job, they actually already have that in the government, right? They have places to do AmeriCorps. They have places to do whatever. You could quadruple the funding for that. You could quadruple the funding for all sorts of existing programs within the federal government. The Department of Labor set, uh, like, all sorts of um, curriculum for community colleges during the era stimulus, right? And so they could put more money into doing that and making sure there's a curriculum for CCS and a curriculum for this and making sure that tradespeople got trained. Like, all of that stuff already exists, but I find that it is not that inspirational to people. They're like, but I didn't get a new program passed. I'm like, but you forexed you the <laughs> program that was already there that was doing good work. Why not do that, right? There's lots of programs that actually meet the Green New Deal that are just underfunded. Well, the
0: role of activists obviously will not change. Their role is to force discussion. But when it comes to actual implementation, Catherine, is this the way it's going to go forward? We're going to just fund more of existing programs? We're going to do this stuff that maybe is a little bit easier to pass, but really beefs up these efforts that are ongoing?
1: So I think there are a bunch of things that are going to happen. And I, I just would reaffirm the fact that the Senate will be organized and run by a Democrat that cares about climate. All of the committee chairs care about climate, including Joe Manchin. So everybody is going to do their work. And whether it's through this 50-50, you know, 51 vote reconciliation, or whether it's through just as everybody was calling it, the secret Congress, the work of the committees, the committee chairs are going to be setting the agenda and saying this is what we're going to talk about and these are the bills we're going to think about and these are the bills we're going to put forward. Remember Mitch McConnell didn't even allow Chair Murkowski to get her bill onto the floor forever Chuck Schumer is not going to do that. He's going to let these bills get to the floor. He's going to make sure that things get heard. All of his committee chairs are going to do the same thing. So even if you can't get a ton of extra money, and I think we will get more money in reconciliation, even if you don't get everything you want there, the regular work of the committees will be structured such that these conversations are going to be ongoing, and you'll be able to actually bring Republicans along too. Everybody will be part of that conversation. I'll never forget when the House flipped back, and the science committee, um, energy subcommittee, was run by Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania, he was able to get through a ton of legislation for ARPA-E, for grid modernization, for energy storage that the Republicans hadn't done because they hadn't even allowed the discussion to occur. And you know what? All of those pieces of legislation were supported bipartisan. There was there was not any pushback. And so part of this is just the way you run the government and in the Congress and the way you run your committees and things are going to be discussed and talked about in a way that brings everybody along and we'll get a lot more done.
0: This has been a really helpful conversation on process in both of these segments. I want to step back a little bit and talk about ambition. Um, What do we think, Catherine, will happen within the Biden administration now that we have this opening? How ambitious do you think the Biden team will be?
1: Well, I think they see this total alignment. So their four pillars of COVID, economy, climate, and justice will not only be organized by the administration, but also organized by both chambers of Congress. And I think that's huge. I think that having every agency pointed in the same direction, having Congress pointed in the same direction... Um, is going to allow him to get a lot more done. Um, and I think he will get a lot more done. I think people are starting to see that, it, it, whereas before when we were thinking of McConnell running the Senate, we were thinking, well, we we may be able to get some infrastructure done, um, but we couldn't really think ambitious. I think we can think ambitious. I think we have to manage our expectations because we do have very tight margins. But I don't think it means that we can't be ambitious. Jigger, final word on this?
2: Yeah, I think we just have to set up the definition of ambition, right? I mean, what I care about is us going from $200 billion a year of investment in the United States on climate solutions to a trillion dollars a year of investment, because I think that's what's required to meet Biden's goals of um, decarbonization of the electricity grid by 2035 and decarbonization of the economy by 2050. And I think that, you know, we're certainly not going to get a cap-and-trade, or a carbon price. I mean, Nancy Pelosi believes that she lost her majority over that piece of legislation. But I think you will see a number of dollars like into weatherization, which is hugely popular, and things like that, that I think will get us to closer to that trillion dollars. Um, And it is is something that I think people are going to have to communicate a lot more with each other, to understand how revolutionary and how ambitious that really is, as opposed to saying, if I don't get a price on carbon, then it's a failure. Like, if that's where they're at, then they're going to be disappointed.
0: Let's turn to Tesla in our final topic. We did a rundown of a bunch of the top stories of 2020, and we got some listener questions about why we didn't include Tesla. So we're going to do that now. So Tesla stock was up 743% in 2020. It has a market cap of more than $700 billion. It just came very close to achieving a milestone long heralded by Elon Musk, producing half a million cars in a year. Tesla is worth more by far than any other automobile company on earth and more than many of them put together. And even though the number of cars it actually produces is an order of magnitude lower than Toyota or VW or GM. Elon Musk is the second richest man in the world now. Uh, I think he's going to surpass Jeff Jeff Bezos this week. We'll see. The people who believed in Tesla are also very rich. Even folks who bought Tesla stock as recently as a year ago may never have to work again. During a shaky year for automakers, Tesla's market rally put the company in a different league. So is it there to stay? Jigger, how is it possible that a car company that delivers you know, only half a million cars can be worth more in market cap than car companies that deliver millions and millions of cars. What's going on here?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a similar answer to the one that we had on the Exxon versus NextEra conversation, right? Which is that a stock price is based on what people think is going to happen in the future, right? Like, it's not about what they accomplished this quarter. It's about what it portends around the future, right? Do they think that the future is going to be brighter or dimmer, right, for the existing automakers and for Tesla, right? I think that today, uh, people are starting to see the vision that Elon and others have talked about in the past around an electric vehicle future, right? Not only did California uh, say that they're no longer going to sell EVs uh, after 2035, but Massachusetts has suggested the same. Uh, Norway exceeded 50% of all new cars being EVs. The UK has decided to bring forward their ban on internal combustion engines. And so you're starting to see an understanding by government officials around the world that it is good for everyone to accelerate this transition to electric Vehicles right and so so that then says to shareholders of Tesla as well as new investors into Tesla that Tesla's best days are probably ahead of it and not behind it right and so do I think that they're worth whatever it is fourteen hundred and twenty times this year's earnings I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a stock analyst, but 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 that is what the stock price is saying, right? Is that people believe, are very bullish about Tesla's future?
1: Yeah, here they made the S and P 500 mid December. They made their delivery numbers. Their stock split. It was three hundred to four hundred dollars in March, and now it's over seven hundred. Even after splitting, it's it's incredible. Such as the banks, like Deutsche Bank, are saying, you know, they're going to by 2025, have two million cars on the road, uh, making ninety four billion off of them.
0: I want to quickly touch on the factors that played out in 2020 that may have contributed to the surge in valuation and the improving sales numbers. I was listening to a conversation on New York Magazine's Pivot podcast between Kara Swisher and um, MSNBC's Stephanie Ruhle, and their assessment was, look, in the pandemic, people with More money, uh, you know. They have more money. (laughs) Richer people have more money. People, a certain class of consumers, is buying more cars, um, and that's what helped improve Tesla's sales numbers. Simultaneously, you have extremely low interest rates, which is pushing more investors into um, investing into individual companies. And Tesla is this really great story, and so the combination of those two factors really help boost. Tesla in 2020? What do you make of that, jigger?
2: Well, it is true that there are a lot of people who have more disposable income in uh, 2020 to the extent that they still have a job. Um, but I would say that it's more because those people took that disposable income and instead of betting on you know, sports teams, they ended up putting that money into Robinhood and bet on stocks. Right. And so, and Tesla is one of the most active stocks on Robinhood, which is an app that basically people use to gamify the ownership of uh, individual stocks. Right. And they constantly are pinging you to buy and sell stocks, et cetera. And so, I do think that that played a big role. I don't think it's true that Tesla um, vehicles are only purchased by. Wealthy people. I mean, it is obviously true that Model S's and Model X's are expensive cars, and that more ex- and those are luxury car buyers that are buying them. But the luxury car market is over five percent of the total car market. And if you look at even the F one fifty truck, um, the average F one fifty truck still sells for you know forty thousand dollars a year. So um, so in general. Um, You know, the price point of a Tesla Model 3, which is roughly the same, um, is not difficult for people to get access to. On top of that, owning an electric vehicle is far cheaper per mile than owning an internal combustion engine, particularly if you can recharge at home. So my sense is that I don't think that the Tesla's only for rich people thing stands up. Um, I think that it's more that people had a lot of disposable income in 2020, and a lot of people were bidding up stocks. Um, on, you know, sort of this retail stock app.
0: I saw this morning that Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, said, implying that they wanted to surpass Tesla, that we are going to be the biggest and most successful manufacturer of EVs in the world. Um, People have continually talked about Tesla killers. Uh, No one has been able to catch up with Tesla in terms of cachet and it it appears that it's in a league of its own as i mentioned in the intro. So do you see any competitive threats from traditional automakers at this point on the horizon, Jigger?
2: Yeah, of course. But i i think that we should all just be very careful about the way that we couch this conversation, right? Cuz to me to me this is sort of like a branding conversation. Right? So when you think about branding, Um, even within a large corporate, you can have good brands and less supported brands, right? So for instance, in Coca-Cola, extraordinary brand. You know, if you talk about Dasani water, I don't think that's a great brand, right? But when you think about General Motors, right? Do I think a Chevy Bolt has the same brand as a Escalade? No, an Escalade has an awesome brand, right? And so at some point... Right? The question becomes, will the automakers use their best, most important brands and link them to EVs? Right? Ford has decided that they will do that with the Mustang, right? And the Mustang does look like is getting good reviews for the first initial EV that's supposed to be coming out soon. Um, I think that, you know, Ford has also said that they're going to assign their F150 brand to EVs, although that's been pushed out, I think, till 2022 now. Um, but you know, if they if they like use their lesser brands, right, like like GM did with EVs with the Chevy Volt and now the Chevy Bolt, as opposed to using their premium brands like Cadillac, well then, you know, people are gonna view the the cars that they make as part of their lesser brands.
1: Yeah, and if, I I totally agree with Jigger, and I, I think that um, if you just look at the the market in general, we have a lot of room and eventually everything is going to be electric, but it's kind of what's going first, what's going to be out there first. And watch what Volkswagen is doing in Germany. I mean, they have 1200 charging stations already. By the end of this year, they'll have 2000 and 4000 by 2025. And it's, they're going to have them at all their dealerships. I mean, they're moving really, really quickly at Volkswagen. They They have a lot of work to make up. But There is a huge market out there. I think competition is only good and having the best brands out there first uh, is going to be really important to get the rest of them along.
0: Whatever is contributing to Tesla's spike in valuation over the last year, it's pretty obvious that as part of the story, people see the company as a serious or close to serious auto manufacturer now, even though it's delivering a lot less cars than the traditional automakers. If you remember three years ago when we were having this conversation when Elon was entering production hell, there were a lot of questions about whether they could even handle the logistics of auto manufacturing. And they proved that they could do that. And surely that is catching a lot of attention as they get into the next phase of scale and build out more factories in Texas and Germany. But what about all the other stuff? If you remember, part of Elon Musk's vision was to push solar, push batteries, integrate electric car, stationary batteries, integrate electric car offerings, and make themselves a holistic energy company. It doesn't appear that that's part of the story right now, as far as I can tell. So, what about all these other areas, particularly solar and stationary
2: storage?
1: Well, aren't they going to create a holding company, like Company X, where they have SpaceX and the Boring Company and Tesla and all that other stuff under, just like Alphabet with Google?
2: Yeah, he responded to a Twitter-like suggestion from somebody that, and he was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I uh, <laughs> So I guess what I would say is that I still think that Tesla is dominating uh, with Fluence um, the grid-scale storage market. So I certainly wouldn't say that they have taking their foot off the gas there. I think their biggest problem, which is the same problem that Fluence has, is getting access to battery cells, right? I mean, fundamentally, Tesla is a battery company that happens to put them into cars and put them into grid storage and put them into <laughs> residential power packs. Um on the on the solar city side, I'd say that the jury is still out. So, remember Tesla made a really big move in 2020 to dramatically reduce the price of solar. So they have said that if you come to our website and buy solar directly from us, um, we will basically sell you that solar at like a third uh, less than you can get it from Sunrun or anybody else, right? So it's dramatically cheaper, right? Like if it's $3 a watt from Sunrun, it's like $2 a watt from from Tesla. Um, so my sense is that might take off, right? I mean, it, you could see that actually working, and they don't really care how much money they make in their solar division, because to them, it's just being part of the the overall ecosystem of Tesla for the residential customers. So they can afford to lose $100 million a year on that program, and it not really mattering because their brand will still become more valuable. The one thing I would say is is something I'm watching for over the next 12 months is it is true that auto companies like Tesla and others like really don't know how well their cars are made until 10 years later, right? And J.D. Power really slammed them, gave them dead last for quality uh, in July or June of 2020. So it could be the case that Tesla has plenty of money to fix cars when there's a problem, but you know, still doesn't make cars that have uh, the lowest lifetime cost to them, right? And so they are going to have to get good at making cars eventually or outsource it to someone else to make the cars for them. But they can't just like continue to fix things every time it goes wrong, because that does cost them money.
0: Yeah, however this plays out, certainly Tesla is a very different company because every car it sells feeds into its battery and solar business. It's an astonishing story, really. Let's go to our free electrons now. Jigger. what is your free electron? What's capturing your attention as we head into the new year?
2: One of the things that I've been watching that's intriguing uh, is this new business called Ando Money that just launched this week. Um, And they basically have this really interesting model where if you switch your checking and savings account to them, they will guarantee you that 100% of the balance in that account will only be invested in like solar and energy efficiency loans at banks. So they're not a bank themselves. They deposit your money at a bank, but then won't deposit it there unless that bank agrees that 100% of that money has to be put into solar and energy efficiency loans and things like that. Um, And so they do two things. One is they, they reward banks with more you know, money that are doing that stuff. But second, they use that as a way to leverage other banks um, to start programs in the solar and energy efficiency space, because then they'll get more deposits. So, you know, I have to say that I think that that's intriguing. I'm not quite sure whether it's going to change the world or not yet. But um, I find it more intriguing than, you know, the cutting up of credit cards and some of that stuff. Yeah. And there's another
0: app that's going to be launching soon, um, called Atmos, which is run by, uh, or co-founded by Ravi Mickelson. And, and I think it's a similar model to that, but I think they're going to be doing money management.
2: Yeah. Ravi's part of our, you know, sort of Oakland, uh, contingency that, and I think he just announced that they're expecting. So, you know, congrats to him and his, uh, spouse, but, uh, uh, it's, um, I agree with you. I think Atmos is another company in this space. And it's one of those things where um, it does feel like the empowerment of the consumer may finally become, you know, a real force uh, here going into 2021, which I think would be great because... Um, You know, well, I don't love Robinhood, it does seem like it helped boost a lot of the stocks. I mean, Sunrun, many stocks had a great year uh, in the clean energy space. Um, It'd be nice to see people's checking and savings accounts doing the same.
0: Catherine, what's your free electron?
1: Don't be blue, I have two. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the first uh, it does have to do with money also. There's a piece in Bloomberg that highlighted this Moody's Investor Service report that basically says 18 sectors have a combined $7.2 trillion of debt with high inherent exposure to physical climate risk. And to put it in perspective, there are only two countries that have a GDP higher than that number, the U.S. and China. So this is even higher than Japan, the world's third largest economy. And they just talk about all of these um, credit scores that have very high or high risk um, or even moderate risk of environmental vulnerability. And um, it's pretty significant. So I, I would take a look at that if uh, if you want to, folks. Uh, it's the Moody's um, Investor Service Report. The other thing I wanted to highlight was yesterday, I had a chance to speak at a conference, a virtual conference of the Outdoor Industry Association. So these are the folks like REI and Patagonia, but also Dick's Sporting Goods, all these outdoor industry companies. Um, Andrew Winston gave, gave the keynote. He's a friend of the pod, of course. And um, it is just so interesting what the Outdoor Industry Association is going to do. I mean, climate change is a huge policy priority for them. And these are some of them are definitely progressive companies and have been leaders, but others are not traditionally. And they're all aligned with trying to do something on climate change and, and in believing that the government has to play a role in that. So I'm really anxious to see what they end up doing and how they end up engaging um, on the policy front, because I think they can make a big difference.
0: Yeah, the outdoor industry is really important, too, because they bring in a lot of um, conservative groups, you know, hunting and trapping groups that enjoy the outdoors and have formed coalitions on environmental protection on public lands and across the country.
1: Absolutely. And they can also test drive a lot of really interesting regenerative agriculture and new ways to create products that create a lot of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So. Mine is about a media acquisition. Inevitably, when we're sending around show notes, one or two or maybe more of the links come from E&E News. And E&E News um, is a really spectacular organization that was founded in the late 90s that has 65 reporters around the world covering every facet of the energy industry. And they were just acquired at the end of the year by Politico, the political news magazine based in Virginia and DC that everyone or most people in the US know, or at least people in, who cover politics know. And it was, I think it's a really interesting acquisition for a couple of reasons. One is because it shows that E&E's model, which is this subscription model, is super important for media organizations. And Politico has been building out Politico Pro. But clearly, an, a media outlet with so many subscribers and insider subscribers is really important. And also, the fact that Politico is making this acquisition on the energy front shows that they think the energy and climate space is going to be one of the most important areas of coverage going forward. And so, because we all know and love e News and we all read Politico, this acquisition was particularly noteworthy since it elevates energy and climate reporting in a big organization.
1: Definitely, and the E and E reporters are just fantastic. So I hope all of those um, stay, all those folks stay in place, and that they're they're even elevated.
0: I think that's going to do it. The Energy Gang is a co production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Jigger Shaw, Catherine Hamilton, they're my co hosts. You hear them every week, and you'll hear them every other week going into twenty twenty one. So thanks for being here with us you can of course show your support for the show in a number of different ways give us a rating and review pass out a link on social media maybe send a link to friends and colleagues any of those things help us expand our audience and our audience continues to expand into this year so let's all do this together and figure out the energy transition as we um make some big changes here in the u.s you can of course find us anywhere you get your podcasts and We will be with you next week. This is the Energy Gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.